Leviticus 23, we're going to look at this, uh, the Feast of Passover. So let's look at verse 4. We'll start at verse 4 of Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations. Now, I talked about feasts and conv- convocations last week, but I'll, I'll bring a little bit more detail to those words tonight. Which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even, which means uh, even is evening, uh, in the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And remember that every day begins for, for the Jews, every day begins at sundown, not at sunrise. Okay, so, in the fourteenth day of the first month at even is, is the Lord's Passover. Now I want you to notice that it says the Lord's Passover. Uh, Y'all see that, okay? It's not just anybody's Passover, it's the Lord's Passover. And then it says that on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. And we'll deal with unleavened bread next week in more detail. But this is all a part of one festival in three parts, but there are three festivals. The Festival of Passover, Festival of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of First Fruits. And you'll hear of them as we go through this. So on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Very similar, of course, to the Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. In the seventh day is a holy convocation you shall do no servile work therein. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. Now remember, these are feasts that take place on agricultural uh, uh, Days, or or uh, seasons, as it were, and so. But it says first fruits, and that's the key to understanding now the third feast, which is the feast of first fruits. But all three are in rapid succession, and then it says, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it, and you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf an, a he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two-tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savor, and the drink (coughs) offering thereof shall be of wine, the the fourth part of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the same self or the self same day that you have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute for uh, forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So now, all of that from verse 5, I should say from verse 6 to verse 14, we're going to come back to. So don't, don't get too uh, confused that, uh, if some things don't make sense yet. They will make sense when we get back to them, okay? All right. So... It was the Lord, it was our Lord God, 
the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who introduced the seven feasts of Israel as the children of Israel were encamped at Mount Sinai. So we know then that they have already come out of Egypt. Moses has led them out of Egypt on the way to the promised land. They're in the wilderness. They are pretty much in, in, the, uh, in the area of the Sinai and now at Mount Sinai. Just getting us caught up to where they, they are. <clears throat> and while these seven holidays, or holy days as it were, are referred to in several places in the scriptures, it is only in Leviticus 23 that all seven feasts are listed in chronological order. Now folks, it has to be in chronological order because God is a God of order. And everything he does is about order. There are some people who will teach the seven feasts in a very haphazard way. You know, they'll say, well, this, ha- this takes place here and there. And then they go back and then they, they move some of the timing to be someplace else. You can't do that. You, you have to follow very strictly what God says about the chronology here. So they're called the feasts of the Lord, which simply implies that they were instituted by the Lord himself which gives these feasts a great level of importance. Now get this, a level of importance and spiritual gravity. In other words, spiritual seriousness. These feasts are serious to the Lord and they need to be serious to us and our understanding of them. Even if we are redeemed and saved and cleansed and all, we need to understand these feasts because they are serious to the Lord and one of the main reasons why they're serious to the Lord and should be serious to us is because the prophetic implications what they are leading to what they are bringing us to understand here not just tonight but in the next few weeks as we look at all the feasts and see where they're going it's pointing us all to the end of all and the coming again of the Messiah. So this is one reason why it is so important and so serious. Specific words in verse 2 and a phrase used in verses 2, 3, and 4 lend to us the seriousness and the depth of the feasts. I want you to go back to verse 2 for just a moment. Verse 2 in Leviticus 23. For there it says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, Concerning the feast, you'll notice I underlined the word feasts. And I gave you the Hebrew words last week. We'll give them to you again in a moment. Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. So if they're God's feasts, then we need to, we need to realize the importance of them. And then in verse 3 it says, Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. Now I mentioned last week that uh, the Sabbath is mentioned here not so much as a feast, but as a standard that deals with, of course, uh, how the other feasts will at times use the, uh, the need for rest. Sometimes the feasts overlap into, into the Sabbath days. And yet there are other holy convocations as, as well. So this is just an importance of, of, 
of the Sabbath as being something that God has instituted for the reminder of creation, who is the creator, who, what he's done, and, and, and why he's created all things. Uh, the Sabbath of rest, the holy convocation, you shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. Then he says, these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. Why does God repeat so much what he's trying to establish? It is so that we get it. It is for, so that his people will get what he is saying. And the emphasis, or as we can say in a, in a good sense, the overemphasis of something is to remind us that when God mentions something more than once, it is of great importance. So we keep that in mind. But the word for feast or feast is the Hebrew word moed. Moed is singular feast, moedim or moadim is plural. And so we have feast and feasts, singular and plural. And um, I gave you a definition, I'm going to expand that definition tonight. So a moed is an appointment for an assembly at a fixed time and season. So if you wrote down the, the, uh, the uh, uh, definition last time, it's, this one's a, a little bit more specific, a little bit more clear as to its, its meaning. It is an appointment for an assembly at a fixed time and season. And then the phrase, holy convocation or convocations, again, plural or Singular. I'm, we mentioned the word for convocation last week, which is mikra, but we have to also mention holy convocation, which would be kodesh mikra. Kodesh is holy or sanctified. Kodesh mikra. And I've expanded the definition for this phrase, a called out assembly or gathering of sanctified, dedicated, and consecrated people brought together in and for a public meeting. Now, I, I will make this clear when we get to the Feast of Trumpets and... Uh, Tabernacles as well, which is the last feast, but trumpets especially, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. When we get there, I, I will show you how some of these words and meanings are, are, are really just kind of early pictures of what is yet to come. A public meeting is a gathering, a gathering together. I'm getting way ahead of myself here for you, but I'm, I'm, trying to real, I'm trying to make you realize that we're looking at all of the, uh, of the feasts having implications for the coming of the Lord. So a gathering together of people and an assembly of people are the same words and phrases used for the gathering together of God's people for the rapture of the church and then as well also for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and then the gathering that will be together with both Jew and Gentile believers uh, in, in the kingdom forever. So uh, these, these are important words. These are not just words that are there, but I, I, I've, I've tried to make it clear that these are gatherings. Anytime we see that, uh, we're going to see the implication to the end time. But when we get there, we'll, we'll, we'll really see it, and then we can nail it. So let me make one more general observation then of the seven feasts before we move on to the study of the Passover. Because we want to fully understand the historic and the prophetic significance of these special days. While we as believers are not required to keep the feasts, we're not required, we can do it if you want. You know, there are, there are a lot of uh, believers that do keep the feasts and they, they do it because they look at the, 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 the spiritual significance that they draw from it that points to Jesus Christ. Jesus has fulfilled this feast, by the way, uh, the Feast of Passover. But nonetheless, if you keep the Passover or any of the other feasts, that's all right. But we don't, we're not required as believers to keep the feast. We should be very familiar with them, though, because they, are, they not only celebrate historical events in Israel's past, but they are also prophecies of future events or types of future events. Now, I know in our study of the book of Revelation and the, and the book of Daniel, we talked about types. But I want to kind of, again, as if we never were there, we're going to kind of look at what a type is. Because in Christian theology, a type is a factual happening in history, and sometimes even a person, but in this case, it's a factual happening in history, and it serves as a glimpse of one or more actual events to come. So a type points to something that is going to happen again at a later date. Now we can apply a type to a person like Joseph was a type of Jesus Christ who is yet to come. And, and, and that gives us an idea of a person type. But in, a, in, in, in what we're dealing with here with these feasts, we're dealing with historic events that are types of things yet to come. If you remember the Colossians chapter 2 verse 17 passage that said that these are shadows of things to come. Shadows of things to come. So it is something significant that isn't always apparent at the original occurrence. Those are the, the endings. You know, In other words, the events that are to come are significant, but it isn't always apparent at the original occurrence. You know, when the original occurrence, you don't know if it's going to be a type or not. But then, you know, if you look at it from the prophetic, then you realize something is yet to happen. The succeeding events or occurrences are called antitypes, which are more intense and are more important than the original type. For instance, again, Joseph serves as a type of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the antitype of Joseph. Do you, do you all see what a type is? A type points to something yet to come or someone yet to come. The antitype is the fulfillment that, that looks back at the type. So Joseph is the type. Christ is the antitype. But Christ is more intense and more important than Joseph. For Jesus is the fulfillment of the type in Joseph. So Passover, as intense as it is, you know, uh, with, with uh, what we're going to see in the book of Exodus in just a moment, the fulfillment being uh, in Jesus Christ 
was much more intense and more important and significant in what it does for the future generations of people who receive the knowledge of the truth and accept the truth of Jesus Christ. Then they will be saved, you see. Passover is a type of that to come. So that's, that's why it's so important to understand type and antitype. So in light of this then, Western ideas or thoughts of prophecy focus on prediction and fulfillment. We can even say that many times in, in New Testament thought, when we think of prophecy, we're thinking on the, uh, the, the points of fulfillment and prediction. But the Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew mindset or idea of prophecy is as a pattern that is repeated one or more times. Multiple fulfillments with one ultimate fulfillment. Sometimes we see that in the, with the nation of Israel and certain things that were prophesied for them happen in various times, but there is an ultimate fulfillment. For example, in the book of Revelation, that will be the ultimate fulfillment for the children of Israel. <clears throat> as, as God, and in the book of Daniel as well, as God takes them through the fires of their of their tribulation and brings them forth to see their Messiah. You know, that's, that's a tremendous fulfillment. But they've, all along the way, they've come through a lot of, of, uh, of uh, multiple fulfillments of certain prophecies that were done early on. And so, let's, let's get to the point of this issue of the Feast of Israel and the pr- prophetic a- aspect of it. God's plan of salvation... God's plan of salvation for mankind is summed up in these feasts. And again, this is a very important point. God's plan of salvation for mankind. Notice, I didn't say just Israel. I said for mankind. Is summed up in these feasts, which were related, as I've said before, to the agricultural seasons of Israel, And hence, they fall into three groups. The spring and the summer feasts represent the initiation of redemption. The initiation of redemption. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and eventually harvest, which was the summer feast. While the fall feasts, which is the trumpets uh, and... um, Uh, Day of Atonement and Tabernacles represent redemption's fulfillment or the accomplishment of redemption. Not again, not just for the Jewish people, but for the world. Therefore, it is important to keep the set uh, chronological order as given by the Lord in mind since there will be a sequence of events that will mirror the shadows in order. And we should see this in our study of each of the feasts. All right, that was a long introduction there. Let's let's get to Passover. The Passover, the word for Passover is Pesach. Say that with me, Pesach. Yeah, don't forget the at the end, Pesach. Or sometimes they pronounce it Pesach or but it's Pesach or Pesach. In the 14th day of the first month, at even, 
in evening is the Lord's Pesach, Passover. The Hebrew word Pesach means, as the English, Passover. It means to pass over, but it also means to exempt, to exempt or to spare to spare the feast of Passover itself begins on the 14th day of Nisan N-I-S-A-N not Nisan like the car Nisan like the car has two S's Nisan the the, the month uh, is with one S N-I-S-A-N and that is the first month of the Jewish religious calendar. And I mention religious calendar because when, you, when we get to the fall feasts and we begin to study the Feast of Trumpets, they also call the Feast of Trumpets Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of the civil new year. Not the religious new year, the civil new year. So... That's in uh, September, October, and the civil New Year is the time that uh, the Jewish people actually send New Year's Eve or New Year's cards to people. You know, back then. But the real beginnings, and, and we'll see it in just a moment in the Book of Exodus, from God's perspective, is the religious calendar that begins with Nissa. Now, I've got to tell you something. I think it's crazy that we in the West and we that, you know, that, that, that trying to fit into the Gregorian calendars we talked about last time, where January the 1st is New Year's Day, is crazy for us to begin the new year in the winter. It's so dark and it's so cold, isn't it? Isn't it much smarter? That the beginning, the real beginning of, of, a, of a year in God's perspective is in the spring. When things come to life and light is around and it lasts longer than in the winter time. I always think that that's kind of an interesting thing because, you know, it also brings to mind the fact that God makes it real clear. The difference between darkness and light. You know, so it's kind of crazy. You know, we do our, our New Year freezing. Oh, Happy New Year to you. You know, oh my goodness, it's crazy. Last year we took a little trip with some friends down to San Antonio right before the New Year. And I thought driving back home, driving back home on a New Year's Eve would be, you know, from San Antonio would only be eight hours to drive. It was 16. 16 because of the snow and the, you know, the, the, uh, the ice and the, the crashes all over the place. And it took us like, oh, you know, happy new year. Yeah, we're really happy. Really crazy. But God, the Lord sure knows how to do things. Spring's a good time for a new year. So Nissan, Nissan's the beginning of, of the year. On the 14th day of Nissan which is the first month of the Jewish religious calendar, it celebrates the grand exodus. This is, this is what the celebration is. The grand exodus of the nation of Israel out of the bondage 
from Egypt. The Jews had been in Egypt a number of generations, in fact, for 430 years. As we are told in Exodus 12, verse 40. Now you're going to stay in Exodus 12 for a little bit, so we'll start here. Because it says here, now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. So that's telling us how long they were in Egypt. 430 years. Now their entrance, the entrance into the land was favorable. When you remember our study in the, in the book of Genesis, how you know, uh, 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 Jacob had come down there, well his family you know, had gone down there because... Uh, uh, the, the famine and all and, and then of course Joseph was already there in Egypt and well you know we know the story but the point is that the entrance into the land the, 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 uh, in other words the, the children of Israel's entrance into the land was actually favorable having received all the blessings of Pharaoh resting on, on them back in the time of Joseph but their exit was very different their exit from Egypt was very different. In fact, nothing was in their favor. Nothing was, was, was there helpful to them. Instead of enjoying freedom, they, they, were, they were made slaves. And for much of the 430 years, they were slaves. Instead of having the best, they were enduring the worst that their taskmasters could, could lay on them. Instead of the blessings of Pharaoh, it was the cursings of, of another Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, the text tells us there. In the book of Genesis. A ruler who was fearful of the power that might be manifested by these alien people within his kingdom. And in spite of plague after plague. By the hand of God. That visited the Egyptians through Moses. They were refused freedom. Time and again Moses said let my people go. And Pharaoh just got harder and harder and harder. Wouldn't do it. But on the night before the final plague, on the night before the final plague, which caused Pharaoh to change his mind, by the way, the Israelites were given very explicit instructions. So go to verse 1 of Exodus chapter 12. Where it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. This is the beginning now. God established that month to be the beginning. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, So what has to happen at that point? To speak to all the congregation of Israel, he has to gather all the congregation of Israel together. And says in the tenth day of this month, you'll notice I underlined the tenth day. In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. So there would be a lamb for households, but sometimes if a household was small, small or a couple of households were small, they would, you know, combine together. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Please underline that if you got it in your Bible. Underline that. Your 
lamb shall be without blemish. Has to be a very pure, unspotted lamb, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day. So you've got five days here. The 10th all the way through the 14th. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. The, 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 the very strict instruction is that at a certain time, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, and in particular the, the male or the father of the, of the household, the head of the household, all together at one time would kill their lamb in the evening. But if you go back and you think on the tenth day they were to take a lamb and they were to keep that lamb within the house and what do you think happens? You start liking the lamb. It's almost like becoming a pet. So can you imagine when you have to take it out to kill it? Think about that for just a moment. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses where, wherein they shall eat it. So the people had to be in their houses. They were to take the blood and they would take it in a, in a basin or some kind of a, of a kettle or something, but they would take hyssop and they would dip it, uh, this, you know, uh, uh, and, and they would smash the hit blood right upon the top and the two doorposts. Top two doorposts. And then at the bottom, and we'll see in a moment, there, there, we, there will be a collection at the bottom of blood. And they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. That's where the unleavened bread comes in. We'll talk about that next time. And with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden, which means don't boil the meat with water, but roast it with fire. His head with his legs and with the pertinence, which is just a fancy word for inner parts, entrails as it were. And folks, in our culture, we eat a lot of entrails in a lot of different ways. So don't make faces, please. <laughs> you all know what those entrails are? I can have a whole study on entrails if you, if you like. <laughs> And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. Not eat at all. And that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. Has to be destroyed. Completely. There's, there's, a, there's a meaning of completeness here. Has to be completely consumed. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded. Which means... You don't have long flowing robes or whatever. You have to gird it up as if to say once, once you're done and when the call comes, you go. You're getting ready to leave. 
gird yourself up, tie your belt around your, you know, your frock and get it ready. Uh, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Eat it quickly. It is the Lord's Passover, His Pesach. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Something is required here. It's called obedience. Because if you obey you stay. <laughs> if, if you obey, you live. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. Remember this day. And you shall keep it a, a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. In other words, keep teaching this, keep remembering what it's about, and keep teaching it until... Well, how long? You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Forever. We are never to forget the Lord's Pesach, His Passover. What we do know from the Scriptures is that Jesus, our Messiah, was also our Passover and fulfilled this, fe this feast both symbolically and very literally. He fulfilled this feast. It was on the 10th of Nisan. On the 10th of Nisan, remember I, I, I marked the 10th day? On the 10th of Nisan, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the very day that the lambs to be slaughtered were selected. They still to that day were selecting the lambs on the 10th of Nisan. On that day was the day that Jesus rode in to the city of Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. In fact, Jesus was to a certain degree selected. To a certain degree he was selected. Think about this. Turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. The Lord had already set this all up. So they, they brought the colt, which is the foal of a donkey, to Jesus, and cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. Now this was significant. Because this was a, a reminder to the people from the prophets, as well as from the, the line of David, that whoever rode on a donkey of this sort was, the, was actually the Messiah. This would be the Messiah. There, there's a scripture in the, in the book of Zechariah, as a matter of fact, that, that talks about that. 
So they, they, they brought the colt to Jesus, they cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him, and many spread their garments in the way. So as Jesus is coming into the town, they were putting garments down out in front of him, like, you know, royalty would, would have done for them. And, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And, and of course, there were palm branches, because there are a lot of palm trees in, in, in Jerusalem and in the, in the surrounding areas. So they had all these palm trees, and, and so they were putting all of this stuff out before the Lord. And they that went before, and they that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna! Lord, come save now! Come save us now! That's Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! In the highest. Baruch haba Hashem Adonai. And they just cried this out. In the streets as Jesus is passing by. The selected lamb. They didn't even know what they were doing. They had selected their lamb. For slaughter. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about all, uh, upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. He entered into the city. As the sacrificial lamb chosen by God, which wasn't really understood by the people at that time, wasn't understood by them. But four days later, Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation from the Passover when the lambs were actually slaughtered. And it was about the sixth hour. Four days later, the Lord was crucified on the day of preparation. How do we know this? Well, look at John chapter 19, beginning with verse 14. And John makes it clear, and it was the preparation of the Passover. So we know then that that would be the fourth day following the day of Nisan, the fifth, actually the fifth day after the 10th the there, the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. It was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, that is Pontius Pilate, behold your king, behold your king. But they cried, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified 
And they took Jesus. Interesting words here. And led him away. As if they were leading away a little lamb to be slaughtered. They selected him. On the day of selection, the 10th of Nisan. Hosanna. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord as Messiah. And a few days later, crucify him. Remember I mentioned something about getting attached to the lamb? <laughs> Liking the lamb? The lamb had to be the lamb had to be sacrificed. And folks, Jesus had to be sacrificed. Without his sacrifice, we have no hope. We have no hope for salvation. Nobody, no one else could save us but Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7. The verse right after it says in verse 6 that we, we like sheep have gone astray. We, we've gone our own way. We're told in verse 7, he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He, he, he's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The very words that we can see pictured in this particular fulfillment of the Passover. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. They led him away. And he opened not his mouth. To complain, to defend. No, he had to go. That's why he came. The Passover lamb was to be a male without defect, which is how Jesus is described by Peter in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's our lamb. That's our sacrificial lamb. And then we think about the bones of Jesus remaining unbroken. Which was the requirement given to Moses for the Passover lamb. If you go back to Exodus 12 verse 46 for just one moment. It says in one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth out of the flesh abroad out of the house. Neither shall you break a bone thereof. There was no bones to be broken in that sacrificial lamb. But it was customary to break the leg bones of the crucified person after a few hours of crucifixion so that the person could not push themselves up with their legs in order to breathe, marking death, uh, or making death, I should say, by asphyxiation, asphyxiation, wow, that's a hard one to say, for that to follow quickly. They broke the legs so that they could not lift themselves up.
And while the Romans broke the legs of the two thieves on either side of Jesus, they did not do so with Jesus. We're told again in John 19, verses 31 through 34, the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, notice, it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, it was a high holy day. We haven't talked about those yet, but we will. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that, they, that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Another fulfillment of Passover. But what they did do is in the next verse, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. The proof of two things, the proof of Jesus' humanity and the proof of his death. He had to die. He had to die for us. But he had to die. I believe in Islam, they, they teach that Jesus didn't really die. He had to die, according to the scriptures. So to understand fully the extent of the symbolism now, we have to look at this from a believer's perspective, because we have to remember, first of all, the words of John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus uh, in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John recognized that this was going to be the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, the lamb of Pesach, not, you know, in other words, the fulfillment of Passover. The fulfillment of the Passover that was a shadow of things to come. And don't miss the point here. John is saying that Jesus, who is God incarnate, is the sacrificial lamb. He is the one and only lamb who did not come to cover our sins, but to take them away completely. To take our sins away completely. To take away the sin of the world. It doesn't say to cover our sins, but to take them away. And the Apostle Paul then also picks up on this idea when he writes in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and we'll get to the next verse after that next time, after this one next time. But it says, For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Even Christ our Passover. He's our Passover. To every believer after the cross who believes in the work of Jesus on the cross. He's our Passover. Sacrificed for us. And as the destroyer passed over every home on which he saw the blood of the Lamb, so God will pass over every believer who is protected by the blood of the Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. His blood on the doorposts and on the top post of the door of our heart. 
This is accomplished by putting our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our Passover lamb, and by receiving him into our lives by faith, our sins have been forgiven. Let's, let's not forget that. I think that sometimes we forget that Jesus, when he died on the cross, shed his blood, was buried and rose again from the dead. Now, somewhere we kind of miss the thought that, you know, the reason why he did that was because he wanted us to be forgiven. He wanted us to know that if we received him and we accepted the truth of what he had done for us, and we believe and confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead, then we're forgiven. The debt is forgiven because Jesus took our place on the cross. Our Passover lamb took the punishment that was meant for us. The angel of death. The work is done, you see. The gift is there for all to receive it, but not all appropriate that gift into their lives by faith. I want you to think about it just for a moment. When the Jews were in Egypt, were they spared from the angel of death by loving the lamb? By just loving the lamb? Were they spared by, 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 by just loving it? Not at all. What about by admiring the lamb? If they just admired the lamb, do you think they would be saved? By just admiring it? There are a lot of people who they admire Jesus. Whatever they think they know about him, they, they, they admire him. But does that save a person? No. That didn't help them either. What about caring for the lamb? You know, they could have said, man, well, look at this pretty lamb. Well, you know what? It's, it's a nice pet now. Let's not, let's not kill this one. Let's go out and find an ugly one and kill it. But that wasn't the requirement. The requirement was you had to have a pure lamb that was of a year old. It was, it was, it was small. There was a reason for that. None of these things saved them from the angel of death. The blood had to be shed. The sacrifice had to be made. And that blood needed then to be applied to the doors of their homes. That is still needed today. You're not saved by loving the lamb. You're not saved by admiring the lamb. You're not even saved for caring for the lamb. But by applying his blood into your life by faith. Which brings us ever so closely to the end here. It brings us back to the verses that we should know so well. In John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You see, He gave Him as the sacrificial lamb. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in him trusts and believes that Jesus came for that very reason to be the Lamb of God, to be sacrificed for us and those of us who believe 
and obeyed in the sense of the obedience of our faith toward Him would be given the benefit of salvation. As it says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him, the world, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. And again, it comes back to the understanding here of of forgiveness, of God forgiving us the debt, forgiving the debt of our sins because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought or worked out in God. Jesus Christ is our Pesach, our Passover. He was our Passover lamb. When we get to the unleavened bread, then we begin to see even more of the depth of the fulfillment of, of, this, of this great feast. But consider, if you will, what is, what is the, the prophetic implication for the last days? Well, just consider it this way. We have to be rescued from this world, this Egypt. So there has to be, first and foremost, obedience to the Lord about the Lamb. And we have to identify with the Lamb. So for us to be able to be passed over, there has to be the blood from the pure lamb, which was shed for us already. Because you see, we can't be rescued for eternity without there, first of all, being a way out. And the only way out is through Jesus Christ. So for us to even begin to think that there's going to be some kind of rescue out of this Egypt of, of, of our lives, it began with a Passover lamb. Egypt was dark. And there, there's a passage in Scripture, we can, deal, we can deal with this next week when we get to unleavened bread. There's a passage in the Scriptures that talk about Egypt being so dark, and yet there on, the only light that there was was in Goshen where God's people were. The whole land was dark. And you look at the world today and you see the land today is so dark. So dark. We can't even go a day like today 
without this tragedy that took place in Virginia where two reporters doing a, a piece on some resort or whatever get shot and killed by someone. I mean, it was big news all morning long. Not even to mention all of the terrorism that goes on, you know, that, that fills all the other days. I mean, this is a dark world. So the darker it is, the more we look for the coming of the light. And Jesus said, I'm coming again. But before we can be blessed by that coming, we have to have our Passover lamb. And we have to believe. And we have to obey. And we have to be cleansed. And we have to be pure. And we have to be submitted to the leadership of our Lord and Savior. So to better understand what we're going to see at the end and the fall feast and the coming of the Lord, this has to be first. You must be saved. So the words that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see or he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And to be born again means that something has to die. A new life has to come. The Passover lamb has died and the Passover lamb is risen. By the way, now we have not just the lamb, we have not only the lamb of God, we have the lion of Judah. He's the lion now. He's the Lion of Judah. He's our guide. He's our God. He's our protector. He's our keeper. He's everything we need. And so, next week we begin with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and we look at some of the spiritual implications there and the prophetic implications with, with the Unleavened Bread, but it's also very much a part of what we talked about tonight. We'll try not to repeat too, too much next time. There's, there's a lot of other things to deal with as far as unleavened bread is concerned. So that will be our study for next week. Let's pray.